Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We have devoted this season as a church uh, to want to focus in on these uh, parables that Jesus tells so that we can get a clearer sense of who Jesus is and what this kingdom is all about that he has come to establish. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you've, you've known that we've been zoomed in on this one section of teaching that we're told about by, by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three, that is really just a sermon of parables. A, a long section of teaching where, for the most part, Jesus is simply telling stories. Telling stories about who he is and what this kingdom he is bringing into the world is all about. And we're going to get to the end of that section of teaching today, the very end of Matthew chapter 13. And we've seen that Jesus has been telling these stories because they are calling us to participate in his kingdom. Now, this kingdom has different names depending on where you look. Matthew always refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke both call it the kingdom of God. And scholars debate why that is, because scholars debate things. Uh, It seems like uh, Matthew opts to call it the kingdom of heaven because Uh, For the most part, Matthew is writing his gospel for uh, people who are Jewish, who have become followers of Jesus. And the Jewish people, especially around this time that Matthew's writing, but even today, they tend to uh, want to revere the name of God and avoid pronouncing it. And sometimes they insert heaven in to refer to God. And so it seems like Matthew is doing just that as he teaches or as he writes this gospel. But, but all three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referring to the same thing. They're referring to this kingdom that Jesus has come to the earth to establish. And that is the primary thing that we should always keep in mind when we read this section of teaching from Jesus. But beyond that, when we look at the, the life, the ministry of Jesus as a whole, it, Jesus has come, everything he is doing is here to establish his kingdom. Now, my guess is that for a lot of us, uh, if we were asked to uh, answer the question of why Jesus came to earth, we would answer with something along the lines of that he came to earth to die on the cross for my sins and to raise from the dead. And and that's absolutely true. I don't want to minimize that at all. But at the same time, uh, that is one component of this far broader vision of Jesus coming to this earth to establish his kingdom finally and fully on this earth. Because if all Jesus came to do was to die on the cross for our sins and raise from the dead, he doesn't do it in a very efficient way. I mean, Jesus spends about the first 30 years of his life just living and working as a carpenter and doing these things. And then even once he actually begins his ministry, begins doing the work that God has called him to do, he spends three years traveling around teaching, preaching, calling disciples, performing miracles and all those things. And if all Jesus came to do was to die on the cross for my sins and raise from the dead... A lot of that is unnecessary. As important as Jesus' death and resurrection are, they are absolutely essential, and we can't lose sight of that. But, but they, are this, they are one component of this far broader vision of establishing God's kingdom on this earth. And in this chapter, Jesus has been fleshing out for us what that kingdom looks like and what it looks like to participate within it. And this chapter doesn't say everything, but it does tell us a a lot. 
A few weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the sower, where uh, Jesus says that people respond to his message in, in all sorts of ways, like various types of soil respond to seed that has been sown upon it. And then we looked at this parable of the growing seed, where Jesus says that his kingdom is at work, even when it doesn't seem obvious, just like how a seed begins to germinate before you can see anything happening on the surface, God's kingdom works in the same way. Then we saw in the parables of the wheat and the weeds and the the mustard seed and the yeast where Jesus shows us that his kingdom is growing into something incredible. Even even when it doesn't look impressive at at the surface, even when uh, it is faced with opposition and the brokenness of this world, his kingdom is advancing and the end result of that is something incredible. And we saw that this kingdom is valuable, like like a pearl of great price or a treasure hidden in a field. Jesus has been walking through all this, and he's going to land the plane on that sermon today. But I take all the time to walk through what we've covered over the past few weeks, because understanding where we have been helps us understand where the story ends. When I was in elementary school, I read uh, the book series called A Series of Unfortunate Events. I don't know if, if we have any, any fans out there. I, I guess not. A couple hands went up. Okay. All right. <laughs> I read this series of books. I think I started it in fifth grade, and, and for whatever reason, I couldn't tell you why, but I read them out of order. Uh, there are 13 books in the series, and for whatever reason, I started with, like, I think the ninth book, and then I read it, and then I read like the fourth book, and then like the twelfth book, and then the seventh book, and then the first one, and I, I can't remember the exact order. I'm making, I'm making some of those details up, but it was a very odd experience because I would read one book and... and, and be confused, and then I'd read a book from earlier in the series, and I'd think, oh, that's why that other, okay, that makes sense. And it all uh, eventually came together, but I would have saved myself a whole lot of trouble if I had just started at the beginning of the series and read straight through to the end as the author intended. And hopefully over the last, I say that because hopefully over the last few weeks, we've been able to put things in order as we've worked through this teaching from Jesus so that we can help have a sense of what he says in the end of this discourse that we'll look at today and the, the, the point Jesus is driving towards. Because Jesus is going to tell us one more parable that is going to sound similar to things we've already heard if we've been tracking along in this sermon. And then he's going to give it this concluding comment that calls all of his followers, even us, to be formed by his words. And it's important for us to remember that the parables, these stories Jesus tells, they're not cheap, convenient entertainment. They're an invitation to repent of our sin and step into a deeper life in Jesus' kingdom. So let's listen to what Jesus has to say and then reflect on the life he is inviting us into because to miss out on that life brings death and yet to participate in it is a treasure. I'm going to read Matthew 13, verses 47 to 50. You can see the words on the screen or follow along. Uh, on your Bible or device, but it says, Jesus is speaking. He says, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore, and they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You might notice right away that if you're tracking in this section of teaching, what Jesus says here is really similar to what he said earlier in this parable of the wheat and the weeds. In both stories, we have this mixture of things that are good 
and bad, and they co-mingle for a time, and yet there's a final moment where those, the good and the bad are separated out, the good to be uh, kept, the bad to be discarded. And Jesus uses different imagery to make the same point, this time related to fishing. And of course, at least four of Jesus' disciples we know were professional fishermen before they became disciples of Jesus. So this is a scenario that's simple enough, uh, relatable enough for plenty of them listening to him, especially as Jesus is giving this this, uh, sermon close to the Sea of Galilee. There are a number of people listening to him that surely would have been fully aware of what this process would have looked like that he's describing. It was a common practice to drop a net in in the water that had weights on the bottom of it so it would float to the bottom and then you either have it between two boats and they eventually come up to the shore or you just go out deep enough to where it's not over the head of the fishermen and then they just drag it towards shore and then sort out what they find. And as you might imagine, that means you're bringing in all kinds of things, good and, and bad. I came across an article uh, in the last few days of a man who uh, lives in Detroit Lakes And he's an archaeologist by training, but he loves scuba diving. And so over the years in his free time, he has kind of wed those two together to scuba dive and and try to find artifacts and lakes all around uh, his area. And and as you might imagine, he's found some things that are really interesting. Old tools that were used in logging or in harvesting ice. He's found all kinds of animal skulls, antlers, things like that. He found things like outboard motors that I don't know how they ended up in the water, but they were buried deep in, in the lakes. And plenty of things that weren't quite as valuable, things like glass bottles that kids had chucked off a dock into the water, and things like a rubber chicken that somehow ended up in the bottom of a lake somewhere. There's all kinds of things in the water below the surface, and yet yet not all of it is valuable or or helpful. Just like how someone diving into a lake today will find all sorts of things and have to sort out what's worth keeping and what's not. Fishermen in Jesus' day would have to get to the shore and sort out which fish were worth keeping and which were not. Some fish were edible, some fish were ceremonially clean for the Jewish people to be able to uh, consume and be around, and some of them were not. Some of them could be sold at the market, and some of them had no demand. And, and ideally, you would want uh, you know, to keep all the fish that are, that are keepers so you can make a profit off of those, and those that you can't sell, you throw them back into the lake. But uh, it seems like that if enough time has passed in this process of sorting out fish, if you've got enough fish that you brought in, uh, the fish aren't going to just lay there on the shore forever. And so, at least in the scenario Jesus describes here, uh, the fish that can't be sold at the market, they, they are dead by the time the process is over, and there's nothing to do but throw them away. And Jesus tells us this story and says this is how things will work at the final judgment. Just like how a fisherman sorts out what is worth keeping and what is not, there will be a time where there will be a judgment of humanity where those who have accepted the message of the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring into the world will be kept, will be brought into God's presence in full for all eternity, and those who have rejected the message of that kingdom will be thrown out. And it's at this point where this parable maybe sounds a little different from uh, the earlier parable of the wheat and the weeds that is similar in so many ways. Not necessarily that it goes in a different direction, but that it, it says the same things, just emphasizes different things more than the first parable. Because Jesus is making the same points. He's just 
really emphasizing the idea of judgment more than he has earlier. And that might make us uncomfortable. Our world does not speak of judgment that often. Sometimes it sounds harsh, it sounds insensitive, it sounds unkind, and yet, Scripture can't seem to get away from it. And even just in the the passages of Scripture we've looked at over the course of this calendar year, we've seen that come up time and time again. If you remember back when we were making our way through uh, the blessings of the book of Revelation at the beginning of the calendar year, we saw in Revelation 16 that one of the blessings is for God's people who keep the commands that God has given them, and that blessing comes in the midst of God's judgment being played out over the world. And in the series we were in right after Easter, working through some of the hard questions of our faith, one of the questions we focused in on was, what do we do with this idea that God judges people? How do we we articulate that well? And now we're encountering it in the parables of Jesus. Not for the first time, and certainly not for the last. And so because that's the case, I feel obligated to say, this is not because... Uh, I'm just trying to wedge in this idea of the judgment of God every chance I get, but it does seem to come up in Scripture more often than we would bring it up on our own, left to our own devices. Which means Scripture seems to think it's a more important issue than we tend to, or at least is much more willing to discuss it. So it's important that we think about this idea of judgment well. And we certainly don't want to take this line of thinking too far because lots of hurtful things have been said and done in the name of trying to be just and fair. And yet at the same time, the story of Scripture continues to come back to this idea that for all the problems our world might have with judgment, God making fair and just judgments is not a bad thing. And we see those themes come out in the words of Jesus that we've just read. Like fish that are not fit to eat or sell in the market, those who have rejected the message of His kingdom will be judged, will be cast away from the presence of God for all eternity. This is the portrait Jesus paints for the end of time of how it will be when he returns to make all things new. And that's the message Jesus gives us. And I don't want to try to shy away from the words of Jesus, but at the same time, we need to reflect well on what we're saying when we do articulate these words. There are plenty of portraits of Jesus in the world that say Jesus is all about love and acceptance, and it's absolutely true. Jesus loves and accepts people far better than we do most of the time. But at the same time, we can't have a fully formed portrait of who Jesus is if we do not account for passages of Scripture like this as well. So when we look at this parable and all the others Jesus has told about who he is and what this kingdom he's bringing is about, we see that those who experience the judgment of God are those who have outright rejected him. The portrait Jesus paints here is not one of God sitting up in heaven waiting for the first mistake anyone makes and then condemning them for all eternity because he gets joy out of it or something like that. If I can borrow from the words of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, he says there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. For those who have consistently rejected God over the course of their life, who have done everything in their power to live apart from His authority, to live outside His kingdom, the end result is the full experience of the the full ramifications of that decision. 
And that's not a statement meant to lead to gloating from, on our part. It's not meant for us to conclude that we've got something figured out, no one else does, and one day everyone we don't like is going to get what they have coming to them. I'm simply saying all this because this is the reality Scripture gives us. If God is the creator and ruler of all, and we have been created to live in a relationship with our creator, and we actively reject that relationship, we will experience the full consequences of that decision. So the judgment of God should not surprise us, nor should it cause us to fear, because God is a perfect judge, which means we can trust his judgment. If someone is qualified for the job that they have, it probably means that you feel better about allowing them to do their job. Let's say, hypothetically, you had to have your appendix taken out. And I don't know how you feel about surgery or anything like that, but my guess is that if you showed up for the operation and the person doing the surgery was just a random guy holding a steak knife, you're going to feel different about that operation than you would feel if you showed up and you knew that the person doing the procedure was the best surgeon, the best at this surgery on the face of the earth. And in the same way, when we talk about the idea of God being a judge, it's worth reminding ourselves that the person making the judgment is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator and ruler of the universe. Because even the best judge on earth is, a, is an imperfect human being, we will, and we will never find that to be the case with our God. Because he's a perfect judge, that means he will do what is right. And when he does, he will do away with all sin and injustice and evil for all time. And he will make all things new. All, he will get rid of all the things that have been plaguing humanity ever since the fall in Genesis 3. And at the end of time, there is judgment. And yet that is not a bad thing. Because it is a part of this process of the kingdom fully coming to earth. The process of the rule and reign of Jesus being fully established a rule and reign that we are invited to be a part of. So Jesus begins to wrap up, and he comes back to the disciples with a question. And this question, for whatever else we might take away from it, it should be a reminder for us that for everything else that goes on in this sermon, we should remember that Jesus is not content to simply allow us to hear these stories and move on. From these stories, Jesus desires that we would catch the vision of his kingdom so that we, may, we might participate in it as it makes all things new. The last two verses, verses 51 and 52, it's a, Jesus speaking. He says, have you understood all these things? Jesus asked, and, and the disciples replied, yes, they have. And Jesus continues and says to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Now, I am fully aware of my own cynicism, so let me clarify what I'm about to say with that. But my knee-jerk reaction when I read verse 51 is to make fun of the disciples. Jesus gets through all of this teaching and, and Jesus says, have you understood what's going on? And they say, yes, yep, we understand, we got it all. And if all we have to do is keep reading the Gospels and it becomes very clear to us that they have very little understanding of who Jesus is and what he is getting at in his teachings. We could almost 
say, instead of, yes, they replied, as verse 51 says, we could say, yes, they lied to Jesus and said that they claimed to know what was going on. And yet the more I've studied, the more I've thought about this passage, the more I come to realize that jumping to that conclusion is probably unfair, if nothing else, because I'm more like the disciples on a regular basis than I would care to admit. But more than that, if you remember back to the parable of the sower that began this section of teaching from Jesus, he explains to his disciples that they have insight into what he is saying about his kingdom, although that is not the case for everyone. And that doesn't mean that only a select few can be a part of his kingdom, but it means that at this point the disciples are getting it, even if not everyone else is. And Jesus circles back around to that fact again to emphasize the value of what is taking place as they come to that deeper and deeper understanding. Because to a good portion of of this crowd, they might come away from these stories confused, unable to understand the point Jesus is getting at, simply thinking, hey, he's a good storyteller, and that's about it. But that is not the case with the disciples. They are the fertile soil. They're the seed that's growing in secret. They are the wheat. They're the good fish. They have understood the value of the pearl and of the treasure. And for that reason, they have begun to experience the transformation of the life of the kingdom Jesus is bringing into the world. They might not understand it all yet, but they are in the process of being transformed by this kingdom of heaven. And because they've caught that vision, they've begun to experience the treasure of the kingdom. And this last verse, verse 52, with this talk of old and new treasures is confusing, and we don't need to get totally into the weeds about all the options that people throw out of what point Jesus is making, but given that this is how Jesus concludes this entire section of teaching, it seems pretty clear. Jesus is driving home the point that his kingdom is of great value, that it's a treasure, that it's the culmination of God's plan of his working with his people, and those who dig deep into that will experience the life he has come to offer. Jesus refers to these teachers of the law. If you're reading from a different translation, it might say scribe instead. The people who had the most learning, the most education in what we know of as the Old Testament in Jesus' day. And these figures and people like them tend to get a pretty bad rap as we read the Gospels. And most of the time it's fair because they're the people leading the opposition against Jesus, trying to get rid of him. And yet, Jesus says that people like them, people that dig deep into God's Word, they have this old treasure. God revealing Himself to His people so that they might live in relationship with Him. And that's a part of the story, but it's not the end of the story. He says any person like that who becomes a disciple of His kingdom will also have a new treasure. And if you notice, Jesus puts the emphasis on the new by mentioning it first in these verses. Jesus has come to bring this treasure, and it is a treasure that is new, and yet it does not replace what is old. It complements it. And given the amount of opposition Jesus consistently receives from people like scribes and teachers of the law, you would think it would make more sense for Jesus to just say, I'm bringing something totally new. All those people that disagree with me, that think they're experts in what God has said in the past, ignore them, shove them to the side. All you need is to listen to me and what I'm saying. And we might feel that in our own day today. Maybe you've read through an Old Testament book on your own and you've been confused about what is going on. You've sat in a Bible study and you've thought, this is interesting, I guess, but it doesn't seem all that relevant. Maybe you haven't phrased it this way, but you've thought the question, can't we get rid of this old treasure and just go with the new? 
And to that, Jesus would say no. Because to neglect the old in favor of the new somehow undermines the significance of the new. The new has priority. That's absolutely true. Jesus says that here. But just because it has priority does not mean everything else is irrelevant. Experiencing life in God's kingdom is a treasure, and that treasure becomes more meaningful when we understand the old and the new together as they reveal to us who God is and what he has come to accomplish. And Jesus does not want us to miss that as we come to the end of this teaching where he has lined out a whole lot that sounds new and different. Life in the kingdom of God is not a hard left term from what God had been doing in the past that no one saw coming. It is the plan of God from the beginning coming into its fullness. So if those things are the case, that God has been at work through all time to bring about his kingdom, and now in Jesus, that kingdom is coming in full, and at the full revelation of God's purposes, there will be a judgment where good and evil will be separated out so that evil can be dealt with for all time. That means that we are invited to participate in this kingdom. So as we listen to the words of Jesus today, we are being called to participate in what was anticipated. Because when we do, we find life. And if we miss out, we find death. And that might sound overly blunt. I feel that even as I say it, but I think there's a balance in those words that Jesus strikes in his teaching that shows us the significance both of what he is offering and what it means for us to be a part of it. If this kingdom life was anticipated, that means that this is not some new fad from Jesus that might go out of style next season, but it is the continuation of God's purposes with his people from the beginning. And therefore, we can be confident with the God who is always faithful and will always be with us. We can say yes to this kingdom life because we know that God desires to invite us into this life. Jesus has come to deal with our sin and our brokenness so that we might be made right with God and with one another and have the hope of resurrected life as a part of his kingdom. And that life is not just something for way off in the future. It is something that God is inviting us to experience right now as we say yes to Jesus and begin to participate in this life, a life that looks different from our world but is the beginning of life that culminates in eternity when God's kingdom is fully established. And because that's the case, we can temper our reactions a little bit towards this idea of judgment. Because if what Jesus is lining out in these verses is in line with how God has always worked, that means that the judgment of God has always been a part of the equation. It's not something we just saw in the Old Testament because God had some anger issues he had to work out, and then Jesus came along and fixed that because Jesus is nicer. And it's not something just for the end of time that we look forward to because there's going to come a day where every, everyone we don't like will be gone. Instead, if how Jesus works in the world, even now, is in line with how, he, how God has always worked, that means the fact that God is just will one day, and will one day, excuse me, carry out a final judgment, means that this is the natural outworking of God's purposes in the world. It's not God tolerating things he doesn't like for as long as he can until one day he's going to fly off the handle and no one's going to be able to stop him. But that in the arrival of the kingdom in Jesus, this kingdom is doing away with the wrongs of this world, is setting all things right. First and foremost, the wrongs of sin 
and death which Jesus dealt with through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. From the moment Jesus began his ministry, he was announcing the arrival of God's kingdom and he was inviting us to be a part of it. And one day he will fully establish that kingdom as all those who have aligned themselves against God and his purposes will experience the consequences of that choice as God defeats evil at the end so that perfection can be fully restored so that God's people might fully dwell in God's presence for all time. So in the meantime, as we look forward to that day when God will perfectly separate good from bad, we anticipate that time by participating in the kingdom of God. And that is the hope of the world. For all the problems we might find in our lives or in the world as a whole, and there are a lot of them, for the follower of Jesus, our hope, our solution to those problems is the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus came to this earth to bring. Jesus did not come to enact a package of legislation so that as soon as we get the right people in the right channels of government, everything can be fixed. He came to establish a kingdom that looks drastically different from every other kingdom that has ever existed. One that conquers when our king is put to death. One that advances through loving and serving others instead of defeating them. That is what it looks like to participate in bringing healing to the world. Like we've said already this morning, I was up at camp this past week, and in the midst of all of the chaos in our world right now, there are all kinds of theories I'm sure you can find on what is wrong with the world and what needs to be done to fix those problems, no matter what part of the problems of this world you might go looking for. And I haven't looked at every potential proposed solution for the problems of our world, but my guess is that if you were to do a Google search and look at what's wrong with the world and how do we fix it, you're probably not going to find anywhere in there, you know what we need to do? We need to send kids to church camp. And sending kids to Pine Haven might seem small and insignificant, and there are surely more efficient ways that we could set right the wrongs of the world. And, and yet at the same time, if what Jesus says about his kingdom is accurate, then for all the problems of our world, there might not be a better way to fix it than to send kids to camp where they can take a week to unplug from their normal lives and be told time and time again that God loves them and that God desires a relationship with them. And then we send them from there back into and into their lives, into the world, wherever it might be, so that God can use them where they are. Scattering 129th and 10th graders across Minnesota and South Dakota might not be the most efficient solution to fix all the problems of the world. But within the vision of Jesus' kingdom, it's things like that. Those seeds being planted. Where God does his best work. So that this world might be transformed and that sort of transformation that happens like a seed growing into something incredible brings far more complete transformation than any politician will ever bring. So instead of trying to acquire power so that we can conquer people with it, Jesus calls us to walk with him, to grow to be more like him, to love others, to teach them what it looks like to walk with God 
so that one day when all things are made new, we can participate fully in this kingdom that Jesus has come to this earth to establish. So whoever you are, I don't know where you're at this morning, what the past week has looked like, where you are with God. But I know that because Jesus has come to this earth to establish a kingdom, he's inviting each and every one of us into it and is inviting each and every one of us to participate in the work of that kingdom, wherever we might go, to make all things new. So whatever that next step looks like for you, whatever God is doing in your life, do not miss out on this treasure Jesus has come to bring so that we can be a part of this kingdom transforming the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to the earth to, to right the wrongs of our world. That he has conquered the enemies of sin and death for all time so that we might have life with you. And that as we walk with you in this life, we experience life in your kingdom. As we get to play some small part in this kingdom that transforms everything, this kingdom that is upside down, that serves instead of conquers, and yet, in some mysterious way, in your perfect wisdom, this is how you have chosen to work. So that all things might be made new. We thank you for the life we have in you. We ask for your wisdom so that we might know how to continue to walk with you all the days of our lives and lead others to do the same as you have called us to do. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.